Okay, so today we're going to talk about bioterrorism, threat analysis, identification, and clinical management. So what is bioterrorism, first of all? And it's interesting, if you've been watching the news, you'll see that they're talking about whether they should be prosecuting the alleged shooter of the congresswoman and others as a terrorist under the terrorist legislation. And they'll have erudite professors talking about what terrorism means. So in this case with biological terrorism, which is a different type, it's the use of biological agents to kill or sicken people, animals, or plants, but there has to be an intent to intimidate or coerce a government or civilian population to further political or social objectives. So it's not just doing something, but you have to have some intent to be disrupting the government or coercing somebody. So that's important to keep in mind as we go through this. So what about the threat of bioterrorism? It's not something that's been on the news a lot recently because there's been other things on the news, but believe me, as soon as there's something about bioterrorism, it'll be on the news again. Bioweapons are generally uh, inexpensive. On the other hand, they're difficult to what we call weaponize. And what we generally mean by weaponizing is we make the agent into a format that we can aerosolize it over a population and inflict the consequences on many people at once. We'll talk more about that. Some of them are very easy to obtain. They induce fear of the unknown. It's not something we're used to dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. They can certainly overwhelm the medical and public health systems. And as I mentioned, you could disseminate it over a huge geographic area. So the World Health Organization has done some modeling of bioterrorism agents. And here's some examples. 50 kilograms of anthrax or tularemia, if they aerosolized it, if they weaponized it, and spread it over an urban population of, say, 5 million people, quarter million people would contract the disease. And in terms of deaths from anthrax, it's predicted there'd be 100,000 deaths and tularemia, 19,000 deaths. So this is more than just a busy night in the emergency department. These are huge, huge numbers potentially. And that's why it's a serious threat that the government is preparing for because if it got into the wrong hands and if it were weaponized and if it were released over a large population, it could have these tremendously huge, huge consequences. Even though it's not that likely to happen, it would be a high consequence event. But the terrorist goal might not be to kill people. It really, again, coming back to that, is to coerce the population, to change society, to change our way of free living, that type of thing. And that's important to keep in mind. You don't actually even have to have an event to cause a change in people's behavior. It could just be that somebody has a rumor that something happened or somebody's worried about something, and then they change their behavior and they don't go about their daily living the way they normally do. So there's a big psychological component to this bioterrorism. There can be either a covert or an overt attack. So it may be that the terrorists announced, I've released anthrax over the Super Bowl, and all these people are now exposed and potentially infected. Or it could be that they just do it covertly, that it's happened, and it's going to be days later that you're starting to see lots of people coming to your emergency department to doctor's offices with flu-like symptoms and if you're not thinking about it or suspecting it you may not realize at first that it's happened and then more people may get sick and die because you haven't done things to mitigate it. So if you have a, a chemical event that's something you'd probably notice right away because people would have symptoms would have certain toxidromes like organophosphate type of toxidrome 
or a radiologic event, you can detect it fairly easily with a radiologic detector, as we heard in our previous lecture. Or conventional is what they mean by a bomb or a blast, like Oklahoma City bombing. That's something that goes boom, you know it happens. But bioterrorism can be days until it's detected. And in fact, it could be years later before it's detected. So I have, in quotes, they're naturally occurring. And for those of you who are following uh, our work in disaster medicine, you know that we're trying to move away from describing things as natural and man-made because it doesn't make a lot of sense. And here's some examples. In 1984, in uh, Oregon, a terrorist group sprayed salmonella in the salad bars in an attempt to sway a political election to get people sick so they wouldn't be able to vote. It ended up not working. The person they didn't want to get elected got elected. But it was clearly a terrorist event. Well, what happened, the authorities thought this was a natural outbreak of salmonella. That occurs all the time, right? And it was many years later until they finally figured out it was terrorism. And this is not very well publicized. In fact, you've seen uh, people like a senator get up and say that anthrax was the first terrorist attack on US soil, where here's an example of something in 1984 that was only later determined that it wasn't naturally occurring. Uh, another example would be pandemic or H1N1. How do we know that this wasn't like a terrorist release of something? We don't think it was in this case, but there could be a future pandemic where it in fact was. So this, the famous picture of how you should protect yourself from swine flu. <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> Okay, so when do you suspect bioterrorism? Because if we don't think about it, we may miss it. A lot of these things just present with nonspecific flu-like symptoms. Well, have you been watching the news where they've been saying that all these birds have been falling out of the sky dead and all these theories? You know what the first thing I'm thinking of? <laughs> bioterrorism, because you know, the animals, if you see a lot of animals dying for no reason, you have to wonder what's going on. But uh, other reasons where you suspect it is a single suspected case of an uncommon disease. So for example, we have a patient, patient with suspected smallpox. Smallpox is supposed to be eradicated. That's terrorism by definition. So it could just be one single case. Or it could be clusters of similar diseases in the same time frame in different places. So everybody attended the Super Bowl, and then they went back to their localities, and then you're seeing these clusters of flu-like symptoms in these various places. And you do an epidemiologic investigation, and you find out, lo and behold, a few days ago, they were all at the Super Bowl very suspicious. Or it could be unusual clinical, geographical, or seasonal presentation. It's not flu season, and all of a sudden, hey, we're seeing all these flu patients. What's going on? Of course, you might think of other things like carbon monoxide poisoning, but bioterrorism would be in the differential. And then, as I mentioned, increased deaths in the animal population. Sometimes that could be the first sign. So I used to work for the federal government and I worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs as the National Director of Emergency Management. And when I had to go from Washington, D.C. to our operations center, it was about an 80-mile drive, so I would do work on the way, and I would call my staff, and one thing I would say would be, hey, the cows are standing up today. It's a good day. And why was I saying that? Well, cows, anthrax, they won't be standing up. So here's how it looks, good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> right? Those are cows with anthrax. Now there's another thing in the differential of those cows that are all lying down, and people from the Midwest tend to get this one, and people not from the Midwest don't. Anybody know? You ever heard of cow tipping? 
Apparently this is a sport in the Midwest where you push the poor cows over and they fall down. So it'd be like an epidemic of cow tipping. So these cows are No, they're sick. The idea is they're sick, and so they're down because they're sick. So the idea is that animals, deaths in animals, or illness in animals, just like you send a canary in sometimes, can be the first way that something manifests for bioterrorism. Right, exactly. So the U.S. Centers for Disease Control categorizes the biological threat into category A, B, and C agents. We'll be talking about the category A agents today, but just so you're aware of how this works, category C are ones that could be engineered for future mass dissemination. They're easily available. They can be disseminated. They can have a potential for morbidity and mortality. And basically, this list is what we call the emerging pathogens. Of interest, there's more than 30 new pathogens discovered in the past 25 years. So these are things like Nipah virus and Hantavirus. Category B agents, so we're getting like a little more concerning, are moderately easy to disseminate, moderate morbidity, but still low mortality. <clears throat> and I won't go th through this whole list, but just to give you a sense on what are considered, and, and this goes through the intelligence community as well, in terms of what could be a risk and is classified as category B. It's things like the food safety threats, like the uh, E. coli 0157, things like Q fever, ricin, uh, and some of the viral encephalitides. So those are some examples of what would be classified as Category B bioterrorism agents. And then the ones we'll talk about today, the highest threat are what are called the Category A agents. And these are easily disseminated or transmitted from person to person. They have high mortality rates, major public health impacts. They could disrupt society. And importantly, we know that they've been previously developed as biological warfare agents. So from intelligence, from history, we know that these have been developed to be used for biological warfare agents. <clears throat> so what these are, these six, anthrax, smallpox, plague, tularemia, viral hemorrhagic fevers, and the one we'll talk about is Ebola, and botulism. <clears throat> And another way to categorize these is into either bacteria, which include anthrax, plague, tularemia, viruses, which include smallpox and the viral hemorrhagic fevers. And then some people say that there's a third category called toxins, which aren't really bacteria or viruses. So we'll look at botulism as an example of a toxin. So starting off with anthrax, uh, again, as I mentioned, I was working in Washington for the federal government responsible for disaster planning and public health preparedness at the time, and this was after September 11th, and we had the anthrax letter attacks, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, when this first came out, said it's an isolated case. They didn't realize it was terrorism. And in fact, what happened was, we have these uh, secure phones, like you've seen in the movies, you know, that scramble the voice and everything, and we had to practice every month to make sure they were working, and I never thought I'd actually need it. And one day I get a call from my counterpart at Health and Human Services, the director of the National Disaster Medical System, and he says, we don't think this is anything, but you know, everyone was sort of on edge then. It was after 9-11, so everything was being tracked carefully. Just want to give you a heads up. We found 
anthrax in this patient, Bob Stevens, in Florida, if you remember the case, and please make sure you know, your secretary, your senior leadership is aware of this. So at that point, they didn't even think it was terrorism, which of course it turned out later that it in fact was terrorism, and we never imagined that the anthrax could be put through the mail as it was. By the way, you've been following these new mail letter bombings. That's kind of worrisome, even though it's not biological, that it could be happening again. So what is this picture right here? It's a brain. I'll give you a hint. It's a brain. Is that autopsy? It's hemorrhagic. You're getting close. And in fact, it represents hemorrhagic meningitis. And why do I put that up there? Not just to be gory, but 50% of these cases have a hemorrhagic meningitis. And in fact, in this particular patient, the way that it was diagnosed is he had a lumbar puncture and they discovered anthrax. And they went back later and found pulmonary anthrax as well, but they first found it in the CSF. <coughs> So anthrax is a gram-positive spore-forming bacillus. And remember I told you for the category A agents they had to have been used as a bioweapon before. So we know in Sverdlovsk, Russia in 1979, there was a, a place called a Biopreparat, the picture of it. And it, they didn't admit to it at the time, but it turned out it was a biological weapons facility. We know this because the deputy defected to the U.S. Ken Alabak, if you've heard the name, uh, he actually used to speak at our conferences after he defected. So we got a lot of good information about what happened there. And they found 79 human cases with 68 deaths, some people infected with multiple strains of anthrax, and all of them were downwind from the plant. So if you look at where the plant was and where the wind was blowing, the people that got infected were all downwind. And when they finally let people come in to investigate, which was years later, <coughs> it was determined that this was, in fact, a bioweapons facility manufacturing anthrax, and there was a release, and it was aerosolized, and people got sick. Of interest, children didn't seem to be affected, and there's different theories on that. It's not entirely clear, maybe, that they were indoors in school. We don't really know for sure. So anthrax can be, affect you in three ways. Inhalational, the aerosolized way, which is the most worrisome in terms of large number of casualties. Cutaneous, the skin form, I'll show you some pictures of what that looks like. Or GI, like if you ate meat from that cow that was infected, you could actually get gastrointestinal anthrax. This is something that exists in the soil as a spore and infects animals worldwide. There's been some cases, for example, there was a, a drummer in New York who got some drum skins from, I think, South America or something, and they were infected with anthrax, and he yeah. was... South Africa? No, somewhere in Africa, <laughs> and he was drumming in an aerosolized, and he got anthrax. So it, it is possible to see without terrorism, and you can see the list of the, the human cases in the United States up there on the screen. The inhalational form, there's an incubation period. So again, it's not that you immediately get sick, but it, it may be uh, less than a week, but sometimes it's been reported up to two months. Very importantly, not contagious person to person. Okay, so you can't uh, go in and get exposed to somebody with inhalational anthrax and have them cough on you and get anthrax. It doesn't work that way. It gives you, like most of these nonspecific flu-like symptoms, 
One thing that is described is these profound sweats. Again, 50% of them, remember that brain, get hemorrhagic meningitis. The chest x-ray is often abnormal. I could see them potentially putting something like this on the boards at some point. <clears throat> you can see mediastinal widening, pleural fusions. Infiltrates are more rare, because what you're really getting is a mediastinitis rather than a true pneumonia. So here is an x-ray from an actual patient from that event after 9-11. You can see at 3 a.m., this is the mediastinum. By 5.30, look at how it's widened out. By 9 in the morning, you can see the ET tube, so there's been some respiratory failure. And by 11, this is how quickly it's complete widening of the mediastinum, mediastinitis, respiratory failure. And if you get to that point, you're talking 90% mortality. Actually, it turns out that everybody who requires intubation dies. No so don't intubate anyone. No, just kidding. <laughs> when it comes to triaging large casualties, there's some discussion about people who then require intubation to be exposed to anthrax and large exposure. Those individuals might be better triaged to comfort care because they're going to tie up all the ventilators. <coughs> don't know if we're based on five cases. Hard to know. But there's a, a substantial bit of small evidence that there's a small amount of evidence to suggest that this may be a marker of fatality. And so if one is encountering this, given the limited amount of information you have, you might well be uh, <coughs> reasonable to withhold your ventilators for those because you're still going to see CHF, you're still going to see all the other causes of the fire. And I think that's important that we do only have a small number of cases in the modern era with ICU care. So if we had one of these with the 250,000 casualties, it's hard to say exactly what would happen, but we may be in that situation. So on February 24th, on the training exam, if you see the x-ray in the upper right corner, if there's anything infectious in the stem, that chest x-ray will be the sign of the answer to anthrax. Okay, cutaneous form. Anthrax comes from the Greek word for, for coal, so we'll see some pictures of how it's a, like a black escar. It's a one to five day incubation period. It's usually painless. It's often itching and it progresses through these various stages. I'll show you pictures of that. Again, nonspecific flu-like symptoms, fever, malaise, headache. You can get something called malignant edema. I'll show you a picture. Septicemia is rare. It's important not to miss this. Why? <coughs> Mortality is less than 1% if you treat it. Mortality is 20% if you miss it and you don't treat it. <clears throat> so here's some cutaneous anthrax lesions. Again, if you weren't thinking about this, if you didn't get the history that this was a postal worker in the fall of 2000 and whenever it was, 9-11-2011-2001, then you might not think of this being anthrax. We see all these lesions all the time, right? The only thing about this particular lesion is, is the edema very typically you will see anthrax lesions, and the edema seems to be out of proportion to what you're looking at. It doesn't look like it's that bad. It's not a lot of periods, it's not that tender, but there's a fair amount of swelling around it. And if you remember the little baby that had the anthrax, they thought it was a spider bite. They thought initially that it was a ground with spider bite. The arm that they showed me in the general had a lot of edema around it. So the edema can be a clue that you might be looking at something more than just a simple 
So it progresses through these stages of the ulcer with the vesicular ring, the black eschar, remember it comes from the Greek word for coal, the redness is remaining. And here's a picture of this child's eye. You can see the malignant edema Dr. Schultz was talking about, very impressive amount of edema. Treatment, uh, ciprodoxy can reduce the symptoms, but you're still gonna have the same evolution of the skin disease. Okay, moving on to plague. By the way, there's another history show on this week about plague. I haven't seen it, but it might be rather interesting. Yes? Uh, of the cutaneous of, form. Is that of, of not getting, just because of antibiotics? Or because of not getting antibiotics and... 20% of them are descending. So if you do nothing, 80% of the people basically only have a local inflammatory response and be fine. 20% of them, the, the organism actually disseminates and they die from the systemic response to toxicity set the scene. Okay. So plague, here's what it looks like under the microscope. They talk about the safety pin appearance. And what's this picture up on the slide here? It's a flea, very good. What's that stuff in his stomach? <laughs> Plague. All right, you're hired. So, you know, basically what they do is they bite somebody who's infected and then they like regurgitate this stuff and it's not a good thing. <laughs> so, again, category A agents, we have to know they were used as a bioweapon. In this case, it was World War II. The Japanese Army established a secret biological warfare research unit called Unit nine, uh, 731 in Manchuria. And you can get plague from an infected flea, animal, or human. This is another thing that occurs without terrorism. There's about nine cases per year reported in the Western United States. We were on very heightened alert, as I mentioned, uh, after the September 11th attacks, and we got a call at all of our operation centers that there were two cases of plague in New York City. Remember, unusual geographic location. It's not supposed to occur in New York City. So everybody was very concerned. It was investigated. It turned out they had traveled there from the Western states. And so it was not a terrorist event after all. But that was one of those red flags. The bubonic form, the patient gets sudden fever, chills, and headache, nausea, vomiting hours later. Bubos develop in one to eight days and can be after symptom onset. So it's a good thing sometimes we have long waiting times in the emergency department. They're very painful, erythematous, tender, and swollen. It's basically a, a lymph node. And if you don't treat them, they'll get septic in two to six days with all the classic manifestations of sepsis. One important thing, if you have someone with the skin form, with the bubonic plague, you have to put that patient in airborne isolation for the first 48 hours. You have to isolate them because they can get a secondary pneumonic plague, which is contagious person to person. So at Journal Club, we're gonna be talking about TB and when you have to isolate patients and when you don't. Here's something where you need to isolate the patient for the first 48 hours. And here's a picture. You see the, the bubos on this child. Another one here. Yeah, inflamed lymph nodes. Uh, this is another picture. 
I would not think of plague if I just saw this and I wasn't thinking of it for some other reason. And what happens is that you get uh, activation of a coagulation enzyme at less than 37 degrees, and so you have clots in the small vessels and you get all this necrosis. So even if the person survives, you can have quite debilitating injuries. Now the pneumonic form, this is the one where multiple people could be infected as ones, and some of the national training exercises have looked at pneumonic plague as the agent. The concerning thing is this one, unlike the anthrax, is contagious person to person. So somebody comes in with hemoptysis, <coughs> could be TB, could be something else, but pneumonic plague, you're worried that it's going to spread from person to person. Incubation period is usually two or three days. Again, flu-like symptoms. In this case, you're going to have the hemoptysis, respiratory distress. Mortality, they say, is 100% if you miss it, still 20 to 60% if you treat it but you can give prophylaxis to people who are exposed to try to prevent it. So here's a picture of what it looks like on chest x-ray. Treatment, first you have to confirm the diagnosis. Again, you isolate for 48 hours. If there's no draining lesions or pneumonia, you can stop the isolations. Buboes will typically recede in 10 to 14 days. Do not do not IND these buboes. You will aerosolize the plague all over the place. They don't need to be IND'd. So if you think this is bubonic plague, don't IND. <laughs> and all the books still say streptomycin. I don't know of any place in the US where you can get that antibiotic anymore. So I've listed some alternatives. But that's what the books still say is the antibiotic of choice. Now, moving on to tularemia or rabbit fever. The tick is the principal reservoir. There are, again, a few hundred cases annually in the U.S. Mortality is 8% if untreated. It has been used by the Soviets as a biowarfare agent. Remember we said one of the criteria. There's been some naturally occurring outbreaks, and I've listed some of them there. For example, Martha's Vineyard. You can get the inhalational or the cutaneous form. Again flu-like illness. One clue might be the pulse temperature dissociation. What does that mean, pulse temperature dissociation? What happens to your pulse when you get fever? You get tachycardia. So what this refers to is there's a, a small set of infectious diseases where you don't get the tachycardia you would expect. So maybe your pulse is 100 but your fever is 104, you'd think the pulse was going to be faster than 100. Or maybe your pulse is 80 and your fever is 104. That's pulse temperature dissociation. Supposedly you see that with tularemia. In the I don't know why that is. In the cutaneous form, there's a couple of different types which can have uh, lesions and lymph nodes in various places. And here's what it can look like on chest x-ray. That tenting of the diaphragm you see there is probably a pleural effusion. The cutaneous form has a three to six day incubation period. You can have high fever and you can have the gamut. They could even present with pharyngitis in 25% of cases. Here's what it can look like on the skin. We had an interesting uh, case a, a friend of mine told me about where he was working in the emergency department and a homeless man came in and he had a rabbit bite on his hand. So they had a big discussion about tularemia, which it turned out not to be. But 
the reason he got this rabbit bite is because he thought that rabbit's feet were lucky. Some people think it's lucky to have a lucky rabbit's foot, and so he decided to cut the foot off the rabbit. Unfortunately, the rabbit was still alive and didn't really appreciate this and bit him in the process. <laughs> Some people say he was lucky because he was admitted and got a warm meal, but... <clears throat> They got the foot. <laughs> this is another way <laughs> that it can look, this heaped ulcer kind of appearance. Again, if I were not thinking about tularemia, I would never guess that that's what this is. The pharyngeal form I mentioned, 25%. Treatment, again, the books list streptomycin, but I certainly haven't seen that around in recent times, so the alternatives are the usual players, including Cipro, and antibiotics reduce mortality, so it's important to diagnose and treat. Okay, moving on to viruses, to smallpox. That's what it looks like under the electron microscope. Highly infective, highly infective. Average incubation period is 12 days, so pretty long. Is this contagious person to person? Absolutely. So respiratory transmission, it travels to the regional lymph nodes, viremia, and you get that typical rash. So one thing we always look at is how do we tell chickenpox from smallpox. So there's a picture of chickenpox on the left and smallpox on the right. Some of the things you'll notice is that the lesions are all in the same stage of development in the smallpox, whereas in chickenpox they can be in multiple different stages. Patients present with fever, rigors, malaise, headache, a lot of times severe back pain is described, and then this typical rash. There's been a lot of controversy about whether uh, you know, we have suicide bombers. Could it be that a terrorist purposely infected him or herself with smallpox and then walked out in the population? Supposedly one person would infect 20 more and those 20 more would infect 20 more each and this could be a huge epidemic. Rather controversial. Most people would probably say that the person would be too sick by the time they were infectious to go out and do that, but it's still one scenario that's being looked at. So this is a very severe case. There's a malignant variety, which is virtually uh, uniformly fatal. Smallpox spreads from the legs to the trunk. How does chickenpox spread? The opposite, okay? So that's one thing by history. Where did the rash start? We always ask the patients that, right? If it's going from the legs to the trunk, that is more worrisome for smallpox. All in the same stages, first macules, then papules, then vesicles. You don't have all three at once. Even if people survive, they can have be severely defigured from scarring. And it's one of the few rashes that occurs on palms and soles. There's not that many. So if you see rashes on palms and soles, you think about this. Now, one thing with smallpox is if you suspect it, that's a public health emergency. We've had cases where emergency departments went on diversion and shut down because of a suspected case of smallpox. That's something that's taken very, very seriously. And not that many people have, who are alive today have ever seen an actual case. So here is to remind you it goes from the legs up to the trunk. One case of smallpox, by definition, terrorism. There's not supposed to be any more smallpox, except they keep it in, in two secure locations in the world. 
That means you've got to involve public health and law enforcement. It's criminal activity to have bioterrorism. Treatment, strict quarantine of anyone who's exposed, isolation for people who are sick. There are some antivirals you can use, but mostly it's supportive care. There was a program, you may recall, after September 11th, trying to get healthcare workers vaccinated across the country. People did not jump on board on that because it was not perceived that there was an imminent threat and there can be occasional, not often, but occasional side effects. So most people, most of my colleagues have said, I'll get vaccinated once there's the first case, but not before, unless you're in the military or something like that. But the strategy now is that the US government holds enough doses to vaccinate the entire population if necessary. So if there's a case, there's gonna be huge vaccination clinics. All right, moving on to monkeypox. This is not a CDC bioterrorism agent. This is not a bioterrorism agent, but how likely are you to see smallpox in your lifetime? Pretty unlikely, very unlikely. How likely are you to see monkeypox? You might see monkeypox. And in fact, there were some recent outbreaks of monkeypox. So what is this animal right here? <coughs> Not a prairie dog, but it's a good guess. Anybody else? No, it's got three words. People use them as pets and think they're cute. And they, what they do is they take these animals to, to markets and they trade them. So they don't really love their pets that much because they give them away and they don't keep any records. So when CDC has to do epidemiologic tracing of these things, it's almost impossible. It's a giant Gambian rat. Giant Gambian rat from Gambia. Yes, giant Gambian rat. Google that, giant Gambian rat. <laughs> okay, so these little, some people think cute critters, I don't know why, they can carry monkeypox and they can spread monkeypox. It's a misnomer that they're called monkeypox. They do infect monkeys, but their natural reservoir is rodents. They'd be more potent to call this rodentpox. Rodentpox, okay, you heard it here first. Clinically, this looks extremely similar to smallpox, except the patients aren't as sick and don't die from it, generally. One thing they say that might be different is the enlargement of cervical and inguinal lymph nodes. I'm not sure I'm going to get that close to a person that I think might have smallpox to be filling their lymph nodes, but that could be one distinguishing feature. <coughs> Monkeys have it in Africa. It's transmitted to humans by contact with prairie dogs, giant Gambian rats, fomites, sometimes aerosolized, but not usually. So usually limited person-to-person -person transmission. And what's interesting is the same vaccine that can protect you against smallpox can protect you against monkeypox. So if you were exposed to monkeypox, you could get vaccinated with vaccinia. Here's a picture. Looks kind of like smallpox to me, <laughs> but supposedly this is monkeypox. More pictures, again, lesions all in the same stage. I don't know that I could clinically distinguish this, except it's the patients would not a look as sick. The average healthy person who gets exposed to monkeypox has a few, and these are the exceptions to the rule of diet, right? But the one in the middle is more like a typical case of that's about as many as you see. With this little case of smallpox, it looks a lot more typically like the one in the white. 
So not that you're ever going to see either one of these, but ideally those people that do this, who have no life, who spend all their time doing this sort of thing, will be able to look at most people and say, you know, a few reasons like this, a person that feels relatively healthy is probably not. Why is this important? You need to take a history. If you take a history, oh yeah, my kid's been playing with giant Gambian rats. It's going to sway you a lot more towards the monkeypox. <laughs> so in 2003, there was a little outbreak with 72 people infected. Nobody died. It was less virulent than had been previously described, and mostly it's supportive care. But again, you can vaccinate if somebody's exposed. Okay, moving on to the viral hemorrhagic fevers. We're using Ebola as the example. This is an abrupt onset of fever, myalgia, and headache. And this is a hemorrhagic fever, so they're bleeding. So they're getting abdominal pain, diarrhea, chest pain, cough, pharyngitis, really, really high mortality, 90%. And they have systems in place. For example, at, at JFK in New York, if you come in and they think you might have Ebola, they're going to whisk you off. They actually have, you know how we're like a stroke center? They actually have an Ebola receiving center, which is not a marketing ploy, <laughs> but it's a system in place to take care of people who maybe are coming in off a plane from a place where they have this, like Africa. Uh, it occurs in um, hospital workers, and this is something, that's a picture of it under the microscope that was so worrisome, is that hospital people working in the hospitals where the patients have Ebola were getting sick with this 90% mortality, and it was a very, very frightening type of scenario. So macular papular rash after five days, prominent on the trunk, there's a picture of it. Hemorrhagic, everything hemorrhagic, bleeding everywhere, petechia, ecchymosis, thrombocytopenia, hypotension. These are some pictures. Uh, you see the doctor examining the boy. He's got belly pain, again, the bleeding and abdominal pain. And the picture on the other side of the slide is somebody that's about to transport someone to the hospital, spraying disinfectant on them and all gowned and gloved up because it's so contagious. There, there is some good news on this. Just not good, but When the most recent outbreak occurred, I was, was one of the more recent outbreaks in Zaire, where there was this very high spread amongst hospital workers, when the uh, International Red Cross implemented very strict barrier precautions, gloves, gowns, masks, the whole routine, the incidence of new cases of Ebola in those hospital workers is zero. So uh, there is a high penalty for violating those universal strict barrier precautions, but if you do follow them religiously, essentially you're protected. So public health works. By bodily fluid contamination. And what was happening is people just weren't being careful. So they were getting infected material from patients on themselves when they get sick. And this would again be an example where if you saw Ebola here as opposed to Zaire, that would be an unusual geographic location. You'd be thinking, hey, could this be bioterrorism? Okay. So here we see uh, this is a grave uh, where they've buried the infected gloves. The reason being that stray dogs would pick them up and carry them somewhere, and it's just so highly contagious that that was a problem. It's mostly supportive care in terms of treatment. There may be some antivirals uh, that could help some of these. Strict isolation for these patients. Again, very contagious. 
Okay, so moving on to the last one, the toxins. We'll just talk uh, briefly about botulism. This stuff is super, super potent. A single gram of botulinum toxin dispersed evenly in a form that can be inhaled, again, weaponized and aerosolized, could kill a million people. What is that Austin Powers bill? A million, million people. <laughs> a single gram kill one million people. So that's, that's pretty scary. Again, it's felt to be unlikely that this would happen, but it has such high consequences that there's a lot of government preparations looking into how we would deal with this. The toxin is unstable in an environment, so it's, it's improbable, but it's possible it could be aerosolized. And what happens, how, how does it kill people, just generally, basically? Respiratory arrest, okay? And so the treatment for the respiratory component would be what? Ventilating. Usually they're not gonna need to be oxygenated unless they have some other underlying condition. They need to be ventilated because it's actually paralysis of the respiratory muscles. So it's a little bit easier in terms of we don't have to worry about getting all this oxygen like we might have to for pan flu. That's a huge logistical issue. But we would have to ventilate. And we have to ventilate for how long? Often months and months. So imagine one million people needing to be ventilated. That's a lot. Okay, so when do you suspect it? Again, this is something that can occur also without bioterrorism, right? The, the picnic or the infant botulism from the raw honey, that type of thing. You have gastrointestinal and neurologic symptoms at the same time. Incubation period usually about 12 to 36 hours. So, you know, I was at this picnic yesterday and my vision is blurry and I'm seeing double and my mouth is dry and I have ptosis and I'm getting this descending paralysis and pretty soon I'm going to stop breathing if you don't do something about it. 60% mortality without ventilatory support. You have to look for the toxin. Uh, what's another way, by the way, uh, that you might see botulism that's not bioterrorism? We've talked about it before. Injections, okay, so particular black tar heroin, they can inject the botulinum toxin, so think about that. They need prolonged ventilatory support. There is an antitoxin. It's not something you can just call up the pharmacy. Usually it's gonna be at the public health department, maybe even at the state level, you have to get it. There's some cautions about certain, avoiding certain antibiotics because of the neuromuscular blocking potential. Probably avoid aminoglycosides and clindamycin. So, just concluding on the category A agents. If we divide them into bacteria, viruses, and toxins, the ones that we're really concerned about transmission from person to person are the pneumonic plague, somebody coming in with hemoptysis, the smallpox, Ebola, of course. You INT the bubo? Key concepts, suspect it. If you don't think about it, a lot of these things look just like the flu or anything else. Make sure that you have access to current diagnostic and treatment information because it can be changing and particularly if something is weaponized by the terrorists, they might make it resistant to the usual antibiotics. So we have to pay attention to what the public health authorities are saying. Know how to get in touch with public health and law enforcement 24-7. So if it's 3 in the morning and you've got a suspected case of smallpox, what do you do?
clinical key concepts for anthrax, the inhalational form, remember the brain, 50% develop hemorrhagic meningitis. Plague, the bubonic or the skin form, remember to isolate them for 48 hours because it can turn into a secondary pneumonic form, which again is contagious from person to person. Smallpox, shouldn't see it, one case equals terrorism. Law enforcement and public health need to be involved. The rash spreads from the legs to the trunk, remember that picture of the kid with it going from the legs to the trunk. It occurs on palms and soles, one of the few rashes you'll see on palms and soles, and all the lesions, unlike in chickenpox and smallpox, all the lesions are in the same stage of development. Botulinum, botulism, suspect with concurrent gastrointestinal and neurologic symptoms, and you're gonna get a descending paralysis. And with that, I'm finishing right when you said. Okay. Any questions? When do you, the question was, when do you get the hemorrhagic meningitis? I don't know. I'm, I mean, this, there's not that many cases of it, so we have to be careful what we conclude. That one patient that presented initially was diagnosed when he had the hemorrhagic meningitis. So I don't know how quickly, I mean, presumably it would have to be disseminated and get into the meninges. Carl, do you ha have any answer to that? Prior to modern ICU care, modern antibiotics, things go back historically, and this disease is well known. It's one of the first diseases modern medicine ever dealt with. But he's talking so, about how quickly the right. time course. So the problem is when they say 50% of the people get this disease, that's probably a joke. It's probably less than that. Out of six people. Right. <clears throat> so yeah. the, the, the truth is, how fast they get it, it's probably not rapid. It's probably slow because if you look at the people, there were 11 people who got inhalational anthrax in this last six survived. None of them had hemorrhagic meningitis. So uh, if they were going to get it, many of them were sick for quite a while. So it's not clear how fast it comes out if you don't treat them. So the, the answer, the, the acute answer is I can't give you specifics, but it's generally not a rapid onset event. It's usually someone that's been sick for several days to a week to then get this. But, but, but the other side of that is if you missed it and it's a few days into the course, that that could be the presenting finding. The longer this goes on, the more likely you are to see it. But how many people actually get this? Is that, uh, that number, that's traditional. If you didn't do anything, probably that would get it as a Any other questions? Yes? <laughs> is room CD going to be enough? You know, this is a huge question, and one of the things we did after 9-11 is we did national surveys of how many isolation rooms hospitals had, because we typically don't have that many. And it will be problematic if we have huge numbers of patients, and we'll have to look at things like cohorting patients with similar diseases in the same area. There are what we call alternate care sites, like field hospital types of things, and some of these uh, particularly some of the ones in military or some of the companies have developed have isolation capability. It, again, it's usually a cohorting type of situation. Um, but for example, the, the Navy ship, the Comfort, they can't do isolation to my understanding. So people were saying, well, let's put them all on, on this one ship, but that would be a problem. It would apparently spread from place to place, at least at that time. So that's a huge issue is how are we gonna deal with all these people 
And the other thing you can do, of course, is personal protective equipment, the appropriate amount, and using it all the time. But those are questions, if you've just got one case, that's one thing, but if you've got mass numbers of cases, it's a, a lot different. For the lessons of history, the most effective way of dealing with these things is isolating this particular uh, structure or, or location and putting all of the cases in there. If you look at many of the hospitals that were created in Europe and in Britain, uh, many of them had their origins of smallpox hospitals. And that was actually an effective way to prevent the disease from wiping out the entire healthcare structure because it would spread from patient to patient from hospital to hospital if you put all these people in, in individual hospital units. So they cohorted them all into one structure, and that seemed to work. The same thing actually was done with SARS. That was also effective. So I don't know who's going to be the smallpox hospital. That hasn't been decided. But as the situation starts to snowball, somebody will yeah. become the smallpox hospital. Th this was the, the exact health policy question, and they approached us at VA wanting us to be the designated smallpox hospital. Because no, that's another marketing thing. Nobody wants to be the designated smallpox hospital because you'll always be remembered for that. You're never. It's going to ruin your business. So it's a good question.